Greetings. This is a special message um, in our sermon schedule. <clears throat> it's an introduction to the uh, Who's Your One evangelistic initiative that we're working on at church. And today, um, the Sunday the 12th, was the kickoff for that particular ministry for our church. Our, our leaders have been uh, working through a prayer guide over the last 35 40 days or so, and we are going to be handing out prayer guides to everybody at our church this week to start that as well. And so this is a specific message uh, intended to encourage us and uh, teach us how to share the gospel. Excuse me. I am still suffering from my cold, and I apologize in advance for all the edits that Becky will do to take out my coughs or other irritating uh, moments. But uh, let's begin uh, the message is about the rich man and Lazarus, and I just really want us to try to understand what what Jesus wants us to know from this uh, story that he tells. So in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is teaching and he says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things? But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to study the heart of the Lord Jesus and, and for us to have a glimpse into the way life and death really works and to learn from his great uh, word, his teaching, to learn from him how we should value the uh, relationship that we have for you, with you, and the fact that you have saved us by your grace, and that as your people, we have a responsibility to share with the lost so that they too can have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I have basically uh, four things that I, some four questions that I'd like to try to answer today. 
And uh, according to Jesus's teaching here, according to this story that he told, what changes after we die? What changes for you and I when we die? What happens to us? What changes? And then what stays the same for you and I after we die? And what makes the difference between uh, where we go or what happens to us? And so then what do we as believers, what do we do now? And so that's the, uh, the topics I like to talk about. And so the first one is, what changes after we die, according to the story of Jesus? Well, the first thing that we would have to notice is that Jesus makes it very clear that our condition or our station, our, the, the situation of our life, our condition changes significantly. Look at the story again. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. The description of his life is um, opulent pleasure. He had all of the finest things, and he lived in luxury every day. So that was his situation when he was alive. At his gate, so there was this connection between Lazarus and this rich man, because the uh, Lazarus was at the gate, and he was a beggar. And he was covered with sores, and he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So... Apparently, he knew that this rich man had so much to spare that enough garbage would come out and uh, Lazarus would pick through that or whatever and get the crumbs that fell from the table. And Lazarus's condition was so bad that the dogs came and licked his sores, which he was, uh, you know, that was the most comfort he had. Then the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side and then the rich man also died and was buried. So, Death comes to both of them. And in Hades, the rich man, he was in torment. And so his condition changed. He he was in a he had a life of luxury all the time, and now his experience is in torment. And he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so Lazarus is in a place of blessing. He's with Abraham. He's in the bosom of Abraham, and he's not in torment. And so the suffering that Lazarus had in his this life is reversed, and the luxury that the rich man had in his life is reversed. So their conditions completely change. And then the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And so uh, the rich man tells Abraham to send mercy. And it's kind of especially ironic. Remember, the uh, Lazarus was just begging and wishing for one crumb that fell off of the table. And now the rich man is in hell and in torment, and he's asking for one drop of water on his tongue. And so the conditions are thoroughly and ironically fully reversed. And um, so that's uh, pretty interesting. So what changes after we die? Well, our condition, our situation, what it, it doesn't always, it doesn't mean that everyone who's wealthy or is rich is necessarily lost, nor does it mean everyone who's poor and destitute is necessarily saved. In this particular case, they certainly were, and so they represent the extremes. No matter how good, Jesus is saying, no matter how good you have it here on this earth, in this life, that is no guarantee for what your condition will be in the next. And in the same way, no matter how bad your condition is here on earth, no matter what, how bad your circumstances are, how poor you are, it'll be reversed in the future. There's nothing that can stop you from having all the blessings by Abraham 
if you are in Christ. And so the point is, is that a lost person, what you have here makes no difference when you're lost. And what you don't have here don't makes no difference when you're saved. And so our condition can change radically. Even if uh, life isn't so great here, it's still better than the torment of hell. So that's the first thing that I think Jesus wants us to understand. Is, and he uses this uh, story, this ironic comparison to, of, to help us see how huge the swing in their conditions were. The other thing that I want you to see is that there's a, a hope for the future that changes. You see, when Lazarus looked up, he has a hope. When he was here on earth, he had a hope for the future. And when he gets to the place of the dead, when he's with Abraham, he has a hope for the future that's completely different. But the um, Or is the same kind of hope, but in a different context. But the rich man's hope for the future switches. And so look at this. And besides all this, Abraham says, between you, us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is that during his life, the rich man had the possible hope of a future that would be blessed. And he um, probably viewed his future a blessing coming from his own wealth, from his own power, from his own influence. And so he was uh, deceived by that. He was blinded by his own prosperity. But the point still remains is that until he died, there was the outside chance, there was the hope that he could repent and uh, be converted and, and have his life right with God. Just like he begs Abraham to send um, Lazarus to his brothers so that they would repent. And so there's an understanding while he was alive that, that the rich man could have repented. But now that he is in Hades, there is no longer any option for repentance. It's no longer possible to change your mind. No matter how informed he is now about how horrible it is, there's a great chasm that has been set in place. You cannot, even if you wanted to go from here to there, you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to here. It's impossible to change. And so what happens is that the rich man's hope for this future is completely devastated. He has no hope for a future. He is forever bound into this torture. Whereas Lazarus's hope for his future, it's um, it changes in a sense because on this earth, he, he had a relationship with God, otherwise he wouldn't be in Abraham's bosom. And so by faith, he had pleased God, he trusted God, and his hope was for a future rescue, for a future reconciliation. But now in heaven, now in uh, Abraham's side, his future is that he is sealed. He has He's never going to leave that place. It's impossible for him to lose the blessings of the um, place of uh, Abraham's side. And so the point is, is that while we're still alive, our condition can change, but there's still hope for repentance. But once we die, once what changes after we die is that our condition can completely reverse. Again, no matter how good we have it here, it won't change how bad it is there. No matter how bad it is here, it won't change how good it is over there. And no matter what, uh, if we're alive, there's still hope for a future, a hope for repentance. But once we die, there's no hope. There's no more a possibility of a future that can change. So those are the things that change after we die. So what stays the same? 
I just want to point out that there is continuity between um, Abraham and uh, the Lazarus's experience and the rich man's experience. There are continuities. There are things that stay the same. Um, one of the things that stays the same is that they, uh, their relationship to God stays the same. In other words, the fact that the rich man did not have a relationship with God is manifested in his place in Hades. And the fact that Lazarus did have a relationship with God is manifested in the fact that he is not in, in the place of torment, but he's with Abraham. The text says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And so the relationship that Lazarus had with God was established, his relationship. But the rich man also died and was buried. So death came to both of them, the same experience. But in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. And so um, the point, I guess, I'm trying to make is that Lazarus was close to God and gets even closer. And the rich man was far from God and gets even farther. You see, the relationship retains and stays the same. Things don't change and the relationship with God is the same. The other thing that is true is that the spiritual condition stays the same. And see, I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the conversion that happened in Lazarus's life, we don't know how or when he came to faith in God, but he did. And his spiritual condition was one of life. But the spiritual condition of the rich man was one of being lost. By default, he was already lost. He did not believe God. He had not repented. And so his spiritual condition remains the same. He's dead in his sins. He is separate from God. Look, he says, So he called to Abraham, the rich man did. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus. Send him. to, to he, The rich man is the exact same person that he was. He knows who he was. He knows who Lazarus is. And when he was alive, he was always telling people what to do, and he perceived himself in charge, and he probably told Lazarus, get out of the way, get out of my uh, out, out of my gate, and he was mean to him. And now here he is in hell, and he still thinks he's in charge, and he's telling Abraham to send Lazarus, send Lazarus, and he's in charge of all that. And then he says, he answered, I beg you, then send Lazarus to my family. And so he thinks, his what's sad is that his spiritual condition is he's still so lost, that he thinks he's in charge. He, he's still the same selfish person that he thought he was, uh, that he was before, and he thinks he's in charge. He, he hasn't even figured out how bad it is for him. That is part of the spiritual condition is he remains blind to the, um, to the realities that he is devastated, even though he's experiencing the torment. So it's kind of like he knows, and yet he's still stuck with his own selfish self, and he's blinded, and and arrogant. And then he says, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And then he says, he argues, look at the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, he argues with Abraham about theology. So here he is, this, this wise in his own eyes man, this blind person, this, this man without a name. He, his spiritual condition is so dark that even in torment, even in the place where he ought to be, if at all possible, repentant. He's not repentant. He's the same person. He's the same selfish, arrogant, bossy person. And he thinks he knows everything. And he, and he argues with Abraham and tells him to send somebody back from the dead. But, but Lazarus, 
spiritual condition. He was suffering, but he was ultimately at peace with God. And now he's at peace with God again, and even more so. And so Lazarus is, uh, he has a name. This is kind of interesting that Tim Keller pointed out. I had not noticed before, but he said in all of the parables of Jesus, he, he talks about a rich man or a certain man or a Samaritan came along. And, you know, he tells story with, with characters, but he rarely names the character. But in this story, Lazarus is the name of the beggar. And Lazarus's name is used many times. And even the rich man knows who Lazarus is. And so it's interesting, and Tim Keller would argue that what this represents is that, that uh, those who are in Christ, those who are saved, have an identity. They have a name, an everlasting name. And they exist. They're persons in relationship with God. Their spiritual condition, they've been born again. And they're children of God. And they have a name and an identity. The rich man renames remains in this entire story a nameless and uh, representative, arrogant, proud person trapped in his spiritual condition. So what we're trying to say here is what, what changes after we die is our situation can change and our hope for the future changes. But what stays the same is we're still in the exact same relationship with God as we had before we died. We're either lost or we're in his family. And so the degree of lostness gets greater or the degree of closeness gets greater when we die. But we're the same person. We, are, we recognize our own thinking. And, we, and in this particular case, the rich man has the same nasty attitudes, the same thing that kept him from repenting when he was alive. So then that raises the third question is what makes the difference? Why did it turn out different? What is the answer to that question? And so the answer is listening to the word of God. You see, remember when the rich man says to, to um, Abraham, he says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. It's interesting that uh, the rich man knew enough about what was going on that even though he was in torment, he didn't want anybody he loved to come there. You know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, I want to go to hell where all my friends are. At least I'll have them. And apparently, you know, from this story, that never occurred to the rich man. It was not a fellowship to have more people there. It would not have relieved any of his agony to have his brothers there. So even at his own, even though there was no benefit for himself, he now has an attitude and cares about his brothers. And he says, let them warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And so the the rich man is postulating that if Lazarus went back, which is interesting, why send Lazarus? Why wouldn't he say, send me back that I can warn him? But, but he, he tells Abraham to send Lazarus, which again is ironic because here the rich man who Lazarus was at his gate for year after year, he ignored anything and everything that Lazarus ever said to him. I wonder why he thought his brothers would pay attention. But either way, he said, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And then Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to him, to them. And so when Jesus talks about Moses and the prophets, what he's really telling you, he's, that's the, that's the Jesus's day way of saying the Bible. Abraham replied, they have the Bible. They have the written word of God. You and I have Moses and the prophets and some other parts of the, the Old Testament, they call the writings or, or the uh, poetry but we also have the New Testament. So we have the word of God in its completion. 
And so Abraham could say to us, Jesus would tell the story today. He said, they have the Bible, the Old and New Testament. Let them listen to them. The point is, is that um, the rich man's idea was to send a messenger like Lazarus. And Abraham says they need to listen to the word. And so the rich man argues back, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. So can you imagine, you knock, knock, knock on the door, here comes Lazarus, says, hey, I'm the beggar that used to be at your brother's gate. And remember how he had everything, and now he has nothing, and, and I'm, I'm coming back from the dead. I've been in the place of rest, and I'm telling you that your brother sent me here to tell you to repent so that you won't come to this place. You don't want to come to this place of Hades. And they look at him and say, yeah, well, and they probably just close the door in his face like they have done over and over to all the other beggars. So the point is, is that, no, uh, the, the rich man thinks that that would be persuasive. But Abraham says, if they do not listen to the Bible, Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. You see, what's true is that the, the difference, what makes a difference in a person's life is not some kind of a miraculous event or miracle. Watching somebody do something amazing, watching Jesus perform miracles, is not a persuasive enough argument to convince you that you need to repent. It, it's you have to listen to God's word, and God's word does the work. It's it's mysterious in that way, and it's it seems illogical to us, and it is in a way illogical in, in every sense, except that. That's the way God works because he wants it to be his spirit that brings life, not the persuasiveness of an argument. When we, um, when we came to Jesus, when we were given the ability to respond to Jesus in faith, it did not come because somebody had persuaded us with some clever argument or did a magic trick or a show or, or did some miraculous thing. What happened in our lives is that the Holy Spirit Use the word of God to persuade us that it was true. And his word is where the power lies. And Paul was so careful. He says, I want to make sure that you understand that your faith depends on the, uh, the truth of God. It's God's word. It's God's gospel, not on my persuasive speech. Because, uh, Paul gives the reason, if you were persuaded by my persuasive speech, then you would think it was the power of my persuasiveness that was the reason it was true and then the way more people would come is by being persuasive and or really oratorical or really uh, clever or slick he says no but we, because you recognize that it came from god then your confidence is in god and his word not in the programs or approach or the specific uh, accents or dialogues of a human being so the point is is that the gospel the story of Jesus as revealed in the scriptures, that's what people have to believe. And you, you can do power shows till you're blue in the face and it won't make a dead person alive. Only the Holy Spirit can make a dead person alive in their spirit and they can make them born again. And they have to be persuaded by the law and the prophets, by Moses and the prophets, by the Bible. Otherwise, they'll not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And this is an ironic prediction, right? Because Jesus himself raises from the dead. And the enemies of Jesus knew it was him 
who rose from the dead. They knew that he did raise from the dead. They paid the experts to guard the tomb. And the experts came and said, we saw it happen. And they still would not believe. They did not want to believe. And so if they won't believe based on God's word, then they're not going to believe even if someone raises from the dead. So there's a lot of persuasive things going on here. But the point is, is that you cannot believe unless you listen to the Bible. Your friend, my friend, the people that God is putting on our hearts to pray for and to witness to and to who's our one, the people that we need to share the gospel with, they will not be convinced by our clever rhetoric. We don't need to be, uh, you know, one of the reasons we're afraid is because, we, oh, I'm not smart enough or I'm not, I'm not persuasive enough. I don't know what to say. You need to understand, it doesn't matter if you're Paul himself. It doesn't matter how great of an orator you are. It doesn't even matter if you can do miraculous events and, and call fire down out of heaven or cause people to float in the air or be healed or any miraculous power event. People will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. They are only convinced when God's word penetrates their hard heart. And the only way that'll happen is if they listen to it. And the only way they can listen is if God's spirit opens their heart and mind. And so you and I, we aren't supposed to be persuasive. We're not supposed to be tricky. We're not supposed to be slick or, or, or even pretty necessarily. We're supposed to just share the word because that's what makes the difference. So what do we do now? If, uh, if we, we know what changes after we die, is that our situation will change and our hope changes. It's a permanent change. And so our friends and neighbors, they need to be saved before they die or they will be in torment. And what stays the same is they'll be this, they'll remember who they are. They're not a different person. They're the same person. And they, they will have either they'll be closer to God if they already are a believer or they'll be even farther from God if they're already still spiritually dead. And so what makes the difference is listening to the Word of God. And so what do you and I do now? Well, first of all, I would say from this story is that you and I need to live so that the lost know who we are. In other words, you can't just be anonymous or hiding off in some cave somewhere and have our witness make a difference. Somehow or another, the rich man knew who Lazarus was. Why did he even recognize Lazarus? Why did he know him by name? Why did he tell him to be the one to go back and tell his brothers? Why did the rich man know who Lazarus was? He probably despised him. He probably treated him awful. But he knew enough about Lazarus to know who he was. He was at his gate and he to see him suffering. And he knew somehow that he had a relationship with God. So you and I in this world, we're not supposed to isolate ourselves from other people. We're not even necessarily supposed to hide our sufferings from other people. We are close to people. We're neighbors. We're family members. We're co-workers. We're, we're fellow students with other people. And so we would need to have them know who we are. We need to have conversations. They need to know our name and they need to know that we have a different value system. We live in a different way. Somehow, Jesus doesn't tell us the details, but from the story we can observe and conclude that somehow the rich man knew that Lazarus was a follower of God. He knew why, and that he was by Abraham's side after, they di after he died. He was not surprised to see Lazarus across the great gulf. So just simply stated, you and I need to be present.
We need to listen to people. We need to talk to them. And we need to have our speech seasoned with salt so that we are not offensive. And we need to have people know that we are different. And that, that's really, it. just live the Christian life here. We are a shining example. We're supposed to give a word to that. But then, uh, so in Hades, where he was in torment, the rich man looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Somehow he knew who Lazarus was and he was not surprised to see Lazarus where he was. So, so live so that the lost persons know who we are. You have to have a relationship. The second thing that we are supposed to do now is, is to share the word of God. You see, it's important for us to realize it's not our word, it's not our persuasion, it's not even necessarily our testimony, although that's a really great way to build relationships and to show how God's word impacted our lives. But in the end, it doesn't matter how amazing our story is. What really will persuade a person is the word of God. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they do not listen to the Old Testament, if they do not listen to the New Testament, if they do not listen to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If they won't listen to that, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead, even if your personal testimony is an exciting story of how God rescued you from this, that, and the other terrible sin, and now you're changed. And, you know, those, those can get somebody's attention. I'm not saying we don't share a testimony, but the point is, is that it's got to be God's word that opens their heart. It's not our story. It's not, the pressure is not on me to tell a persuasive story, a winsome story, an exciting story, a cool story. It can be a boring story, but it has the word of God in it. And that's what makes the difference. So we need to live so that the lost know who we are. Be in a relationship with those persons and share the word of God. Don't be afraid of the word of God. Paul himself said, I'm not ashamed of my testimony. I'm not ashamed of telling you how God... No, that's not what he needed to say. What he needed to say is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in the gospel, our righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So the gospel story... The simple gospel story, the, it's so simple it's embarrassing because it, it sounds so childish, but, but basically it's just a very, very simple story that, hey, I'm a sinner and I lost it all. But Jesus came, he's God's son, and he came to life, uh, he came to live on earth and he lived the life that we should have lived so that he could die the death that we should have died so that he did it all for us. He paid for my sin. And so I lost everything. But Jesus did everything and paid for it. And so if I believe in him, I just trust him. By, it's nothing I can do with actions. If I trust him, then Jesus will give me his eternal life. Share the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Share the word of God. And then thirdly, this whole process, and this is why we're doing the, the, um, prayer, um, the prayer guide just to get us started. And while we're praying for each other on Sunday nights, and uh, we're trying to use our, our Sunday night church as a as a um, the room where it happens as far as we prepare and, and plan and encourage one another to share the gospel with our friends. We need to pray for God for help. And I, I would say, for example, you know, the Apostle Paul, look at here, he has two prayers, one in Colossians and one in Ephesians, where they're almost exactly the same. In Colossians, he said to the people, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So that's an instruction to you and I. We're supposed to be praying all the time. And, he, and then Paul even says, and pray for us too. 
that God may open a door for our message, right? So that we'll get the opportunities. And so we'll pray for one another. I'm praying for you and you're praying for me that God will open a door for us to share the message, our message, so that we may proclaim, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, the gospel, which Paul was in chains for telling that. And then he's, then Paul also says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So we need to pray for one another and say, God, open the door for my brother and sister so that they can share the gospel and help them to proclaim it clearly, the message clearly. Jesus came to die for your sins. There is What else are you going to do with your sin? There's no other way to get rid of your guilt. Somebody has to pay. Please understand who Jesus is and why he did it. And so Paul even, the bold and oratorically strong and great teacher, Paul, he needed people to pray for him that he would say it clearly. And then in Ephesians, he has the same basic prayer. He says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So again, we're supposed to do this. And then with this in mind, be alert, right? He said that last time too, be alert and always keep on praying, always be watching for all the Lord's people. And so we're supposed to pray for one another. And what are we supposed to pray? Well, Paul says, pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. I need to talk about the gospel. I don't need to talk about how he rescued me from drug addiction or how he kept me from uh, losing my family, although those are parts of wonderful things we could talk about God doing in our lives. But it's the gospel that saves them, not the story of how we got out of drugs. And so we need to tell the gospel that Jesus came to earth and he died for our sins and he pays the entire price of God's wrath. And so if by faith we can trust him and we can have our sins forgiven and we can be free from guilt and live a new life. So that gospel, that's the thing that Paul's in chains for. And then Paul says again, last time he, in Colossians, he said, pray that I must say it clearly. And now he says, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And so Paul says, pray for me. Pray that I'll be clear. Pray that I'll be brave. Pray that I'll teach the gospel. Pray that God will give us open doors. And so that's what you and I need to do. We need to live at somebody's gate. Maybe they hate us. Maybe they spit on us. But all we need to do is be Jesus. We need to be in this world. We need to live so that the rich man knows who we are. So that the neighbor knows who we are. And we need to share the word of God. That's the primary thing. Share the gospel. Tell about how Jesus came and died, rose again, and paid for our sins. And we can have salvation in him, life forevermore. Just the simple gospel. And then pray to God for help. Pray for one another. Pray for God to help that he would open the door, that he would give us clarity and fearlessness so that we could share with our friends who is our one. So again, I invite you to join our church. Join us in this uh, this 30-day prayer guide. Ask God to show you a person. You know, this two, who's your one doesn't mean you only can talk to one person. You can talk to as many God opens the door for. But the, the one is at least, the, at least one, right? Have an initiative for that. And pray for that person specifically. And ask God to open a door. And we're hoping and praying that God will bring much fruit. Not to our account, not to make us look good, but because Jesus deserves to be trusted in and he needs, he deserves to be believed. And so that's what we're going to do too. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you give us the privilege. You love human beings so much that you choose to use other human beings to tell the gospel. 
You honor us and our relationships with one another so much that you use us as the means to share the gospel. So, as your people, help us to be faithful in how we do that. Help us to share the gospel and, uh, and to share what you've done in our lives. And to, um, Father, help us to be clear about the gospel and, and not try to water it down and make it less offensive. It's going to sound foolish to the world no matter what, and it is foolishness. But to those who hear it, it's the power of God and the salvation. If they will listen to it, it changes their life. It's not foolish at all. It's the greatest treasure of all. And so we pray that you will open the hearts of our friends and neighbors, that they will see your gospel as the greatest treasure. They'll see Jesus as their Savior. And we'll, we'll step back and we'll say, I can't believe it. Only God could have done that because it was his word that they listened to. And so we'll be amazed at your great work as well. And so help us to be clear and help us to be fearless as we share the gospel with our friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about our church, online resources, and in-person services, our website is the best place to check, wpbiblefellowship.org. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus and may you grow in his grace.